0: Welcome to Puto Politics, the political podcast of the San Antonio Express-News. My name is Gilbert Garcia, metro columnist, and I'm joined by Carrie Clark, columnist, editorial board. Nancy Prayer Johnson, deputy editorial board editor. And we're really happy today to be joined by a special guest, um, U.S. Representative Colin Hallred. He's uh, a three-term congressman. He was uh, he represents the the Dallas area and was uh, he defeated. An 11-term Republican incumbent Pete Sessions in 2018, uh, in what was, I think, seen by many people as a big upset, and he's now running for the U.S. Senate seat uh, held by Ted Cruz. Congressman, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I wanted to start off by asking a, a, its a question you—you you, I know you get a lot, but you—you uh, you had to fight really hard to get that congressional seat, and a lot of people—not that many people—probably thought initially that you were going to be able to, to to pull that off. And um, to to challenge uh, Ted Cruz in what has been a, domin- a state dominated by uh, the Republican Party is is a tall task. I know that you have you have a lot of concerns about the way uh, you know he's represented the state of Texas in the U.S. Senate. But what made you decide that you wanted to be that person? Because a lot there are a lot of Democrats in Texas who have objected uh, to uh, you know his his time in the Senate and how and how
1: he's he performed. But not everyone decides to actually throw their hat in the ring. Yeah, that's right. Well, you know, I felt very strongly that we can't afford six more years of of Ted Cruz in the United States Senate representing us and I think not representing us. Uh, And I feel similarly to the way I did uh, when I ran in 2018 against, you know, a 22-year incumbent, as you said, uh, somebody who had been unopposed in the previous election and that nobody thought could be beaten, but I thought did not reflect the community that I was born and raised in. And I'm, you know, I'm a fourth generation Texan. Uh, I was you know, raised by a single mother in Dallas, you know, played football at Baylor. Uh, my family uh, is from Brownsville. You know, I think I know who we are, and I don't think that uh, we are who Ted Cruz says we are. Uh, and I, want, I also have a record of running and winning in these tough races, and I know how to do it, and I know what it takes. And I and I'm, I guess you could say battle-tested. And uh, I think we're ready. I, I'm concerned with, you know, a lot of folks talk about how long it's been since we had you know, a Democrat win statewide, but I'm concerned with where we're going. And I think we're a dynamic, diverse state that's growing incredibly rapidly, that has so many things uh, in our favor, but our political leadership's not matching up to that in many ways. And I think Ted Cruz is number one in terms of not representing or reflecting the state that I know, and the state that we're becoming.
0: Ted Cruz uh, has obviously been a big supporter of former President Trump. This week, uh, the former president was indicted for the fourth time. This was in Georgia, and this is the second indictment that uh, deals with his actions surrounding the the 2020 election and his refusal to accept the results of the 2020 election. And I think one of the the byproducts of the Trump era um, has been that we've seen. Uh, sort of belief or, or faith in in many of our institutions it has been diminished because of a lot of the attacks that we've seen from him and his allies. We've seen uh, a loss of faith um, in uh, the, our election system, in our judicial system, in the media, uh, in our intelligence community. And I, I guess I wondered, you know, how deeply you're concerned about, uh, you know, the possible long-term effects of this if people no longer believe in things that we... We, we generally all could... There was a consensus on yeah. we had flaws with the election system, but we all basically believed in the election system or believed right. in the judicial system. Yeah. What are your concerns about that?
1: Well, I was a voting rights lawyer before I came to Congress, and I actually think that, as John Lewis would say, the right to vote in our democracy is sacred mm-hmm. and that we have to protect it uh, really at all costs. It's the basis of all of our benefits as Americans. Uh, and I, I while I'm concerned about uh, the reaction... Uh, to the, to these indictments. I'd also be concerned if there was no accountability for trying to overturn an American presidential election. Mm-hmm. You know, I was in the Capitol on January 6th uh, when the mob was trying to break in. Uh, I was there for the certification of the votes, uh, and I remember Senator Cruz objecting uh, to those results, uh, and then we, we split into our, our different houses. We're going through a debate of the Arizona results, and the debate kept getting interrupted. Uh, by uh, alarms and sirens, and I started getting texts from my staff and mm-hmm. from my wife asking me where I was. Mm-hmm. And I was a little bit annoyed, to be honest with you, because I was trying to work, and I thought, I'm, a- I'm on the house floor, I'm in the mm-hmm. safest place in the country outside of maybe the White House. Mm-hmm. But they were, of course, watching a very different story playing out on TV. They were seeing a mob that was breaching the Capitol. And I sent my wife a text that I never would have to expect to have to send uh, in this job She was seven months pregnant at home with our son who wasn't yet to, Jordan. She was seven months pregnant with our son who was going to be born, Cameron. Uh, And I sent her text saying, you know, whatever happens, I love you. Because at that point, we had locked all the doors. We'd barricaded the doors with furniture we used to hold paper. Hmm. The doors that the president usually walks through when the sergeant-at-arms announces them for the State of the Union. We were barricading, the glass was being broken, and it looked like there was no way out. And so I took off my suit jacket, because when you're a former NFL linebacker, in a room with a bunch of legislators, they're looking to you probably to protect them uh, in a physical situation like that. And I took off my suit jacket, which actually is a violation of our house rules. I'd never done that before, and was prepared, uh, you know, for whatever's going to come. You know, and I think we came very close that day to losing our democracy, much closer than I think we still even have kind of fully wrangled with as a country, as Texans. And Ted Cruz played a, a role in that, and we're seeing him play an, a continuing role. I think undermining faith uh, in our institutions. We have, we've now had multiple prosecutors reach the same conclusion. Uh, and, you know, if you believe in our institutions, you'd say, well, uh, a jury of his peers is going to hear this case. And if they find him uh, to be not guilty, then he will uh, be found not guilty. But this is not you know, some kind of you know, partisan witch hunt that this is based on you know, facts and actions that did happen, that we all watched happen. Sure. Uh, and, and so that's also part of why we didn't move on from Ted Cruz, because he's been so damaging to our democracy, so divisive as a senator. He's used his role to make, I think, our country a more divided and, and less unified place.
0: Texas could have chosen Beto a few years back, right? What makes you think um, that Texans
1: will vote for you? Well, we're going to build you know, on what Beto did, and I think it's... Uh, it's important for us as a state that Beto lost by you know, two and a half points. Mm-hmm. because It showed how many folks were ready to move on from Ted Cruz. And we're six years on as a state. We've had a lot of changes. The country's in a different place. Every election uh, is very different. As I said, I've, we're going to build on what he did, but I also have a record of running in tough races and know what it takes. I've, I've never lost a race, and I don't plan on starting now. Uh, and uh, there are folks out there who I think are looking for someone to come along and to appeal to our common values. I think about the folks who I know in my community uh, who voted for me, who used to drive around with W stickers on the back of their cars because they were such big fans of George W. Bush, mm-hmm. uh, and who now voted for me, you know, contribute to my campaigns, and are supporters of mine because they felt like I'm a Republican, but I'm not that kind of Republican. Mm-hmm. There are independents out there who are wondering what their political home is going to be. And, of course, we had 9.5 million Texans who didn't vote in the last election who could have. Uh, and so, as a voting rights lawyer, I also want to make sure that we try and get as many of those folks engaged as we possibly can. Uh, and so, uh, this, this is not going to be about the 2018 race. We'll build on it. Uh, and, and that's why I plan to win. There are a lot of politicians, Texas politicians, who play the role of what's supposed to be
0: a Texan okay. and play to the stereotypes of, of what is a Texan. And many times, stereotypes which don't represent what many Texans look
1: like. You say you're a fourth-generation Texan. Mm-hmm. What does being a Texan mean to you? Yeah. that's is a, a good question because I'm actually kind of a, in some ways, I, I, I could play a role. Like, I was the captain of the Baylor football team, you know, when I was an NFL linebacker, right? Football's pretty big in our state. Um, I actually think that we have a streak of independence in us that has made us, throughout our history, unique. We're not just, we're not sou- Southern, we're not Western, we're Southwestern. And we're a state that, you know, contains multitudes. We've got every, you know, biome possible, every kind of, you know, the, from the biggest metroplexes you can possibly imagine, uh, you know, to the smallest towns. Uh, but the, the Texans who I think have stood out in history have been independent leaders who did what was best for Texas, but who also, I think, could kind of see around the corner about what made us great as a state and a country, uh, and and sometimes it, you know that meant leading in difficult ways. And i I'm, I think of someone like you know LBJ, President Johnson, uh, who was a Southerner, but then was the one who pushed through the Civil Rights Act uh, and the Voting Rights Act, knowing that it was going to have political consequences. Uh, and there have been uh, Republicans, uh, and uh, I'm thinking of you know former Speaker Strauss uh, in the State House who at times said, you know, I know my party wants to do this, but this is going to be bad for business, this is going to be bad for our state, and this is not going to pass while I'm speaker uh, in this legislature. That independence streak to me is one that has made us a bit unique. And what I've been, you know, disconcerted about, honestly, is seeing kind of cookie-cutter politicians from Texas as if we're just like anywhere else. If we've got 30 million people, we'd be a very big and powerful country if we were our own country, which obviously we were at one time. <laughs> Uh, and we need folks who are not just trying to, you know, uh, you know, I, I guess, suck up to, to Donald Trump or someone like that, but who will lead for Texas, understanding, uh, you know, who we are. And, and so to me, that independent streak is what has defined us. And so it's, all, it's what made us, I think, uh, one of the most interesting places that there, there possibly is. One of the
0: things that I think makes this this period, the last three years or so, a really con- confounding political period is that. I think it's, we've seen the most extreme uh, vitriolic uh, partisan rhetoric yeah. out there. But at the same time, there have been some important uh, bipartisan bills that have been signed into law. I'm, I'm thinking of the Infrastructure Bill, Safe for Communities Act, Microchips Bill. Um, but there's still, there's frustration, uh, certainly on, on the Democratic side, um, that that there are other things that haven't been uh, passed. And your uh, primary opponent, um, uh, State Senator Roland Gutierrez, has talked about his support for eliminating the Senate filibuster, which has probably blocked certain things from... from, uh, from, uh,
1: Democrats from getting certain things uh, through Congress. Where where do you stand on the filibuster? Well, I come at it from seeing it operate uh, in the Senate for the last five years as a House member. Uh, And to me, we have to reform the filibuster. Mm -hmm. Um, Historically, the filibuster was used rarely and was largely used to block civil rights legislation, anti-lynching legislation, and it was a speaking filibuster. People actually had to go up and fill it in. You had to yeah. hold the floor, and they had a rotation, you know, and that's why the, you know, the Southern senators would kind of be on patrol, basically, and they would rotate out, and they'd, they'd try to hold the floor and go up the works, and then they'd do it so long that you moved on to a different piece of legislation and let that one die. Uh, what we were... this position we're in now which is ahistorical, is that every single piece of legislation is being subjected to the filibuster. So every single bill now has to have a 60-vote threshold, which has just not been the case outside of the last 20 or 30 years. Uh, and both parties have contributed to this, to be very clear. Uh, in, in many ways, Democrats use this as a weapon to block Republican legislation. Um, and to me, it's made the Senate no longer a functioning body uh, to where... Uh, we are producing much less legislation than we historically have. We're packing everything we can into budget bills because those are subject to only a 50-vote threshold. Uh, And there are these kind of mega-bills that I think should be, in many cases, debated and and seen separately and independently. Uh, And we've already drawn exclusions to the filibuster on judicial nominations, on budget bills, on cabinet nominations. Those only need a 50-vote threshold. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to something like voting rights or when it comes to any you know, basic legislation dealing with trying to make the country a better place or, or advance an agenda, it's subjected now to the 60-vote threshold uniformly. And to me, that that has to change. Uh, and I, I've been a part of conversations about this uh, with you know, some of the senators, and I know uh, that there's a, a, a willingness. We still want to maintain this bipartisan nature of the Senate, and I think it's really important. And in the House, I've been one of, if not the most bipartisan member from the Texas delegation, one of the most bipartisan in the country. I think that's really important because lasting legislation often is bipartisan. Otherwise, it's attacked, as we've seen, uh, and constantly tried to be taken down. But I actually think that uh, filibuster reform uh, can allow us to have more bipartisan legislation in the Senate because folks will have uh, the incentive to be involved with a bill that's gonna move instead of saying, well, we're just gonna block it with the filibuster. So what are some of the, the, the steps you have? I mean, I'd imagine one of them would be actually
0: requiring people to get up and speak. I think, I
1: really I think that's know. it. I mean, I think we have to return to, uh, if you want to hold the floor, That okay, then, you know, hold the floor. Let's go back to, I think, the, the traditional view uh, of the speaking filibuster. Uh, and uh, you know, I, I think there are some... What I've said before is if we can't do that, then we should at least have carve-outs Four bills that address kind of the fundamentals of our democracy, so that you know, voting rights legislation or something yeah. like that yeah. shouldn't be subjected to the sixty vote threshold. But to me, I'd go back to the traditional view of the filibuster, which it was. But if you if you want to uh, block a piece of legislation, then you have to hold the floor. How about the sixty vote threshold? Is, yeah, you want, that, would you want to? And that I, would that would I, mean I, yeah. that, uh, that that has to come down yeah. to any number, any particular number that you. Oh, well, no, I think it has to be a majority vote. I don't think okay. there's any anything else to do. Okay, you know? gotcha. Um. You know, we've uh, our paper and others around the state have
0: done. We have devoted a lot of coverage to the uh, the border issue and particularly Eagle Pass, and uh, there it's 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 been a really difficult thing to see what uh, what's what's been happening with with uh, migrants, uh, you know, trying in in their attempts to cross the river. I wonder the the the, uh, idea of Comprehensive immigration reform is something that's been talked about. Uh, as you know, we were over at the editorial board of the Wall as you pointed out, I mean there hasn't really been a comprehensive bill since I think '86 when mm-hmm. that, that Ronald Reagan signed into law. Um, I guess I would want to get your thoughts on on uh, whether that's you see that as a, a, a you see a pathway there, and what do you, you think the
1: essential ingredients in that yeah. would be? Well, uh, as I said, my family's from Brownsville. Uh, my grandfather was a customs officer. I don't think of our border communities as a place that you go for kind of a political safari, mm-hmm. where you go down there uh, and you try to, you know, you kind of get in the in the, you know, brush and you point out problems, and you say, well, there, there's migrants there. That's not the job of elected officials, it's yep. the past legislation to actually do something about it and to help these communities, because they are bearing the brunt of our inaction in Washington. Uh, and, and to me, that's what I get frustrated with, both with Democrats and Republicans. Uh, is the idea that this inaction is not like it doesn't have a con- uh, you know, an outcome. It leads to uh, county resources, municipal resources, charitable resources being stretched to the maximum in these border communities. And what the governor is doing, I think, is, is not helping at all, and it, it's crossed over into barbarity. And what's happening at Eagle Pass, in my opinion, uh, these buoys, is not who we are as Texans, not who we are as Americans, and it, it's a, a mark on us now. And to me they should be removed immediately but we have to I think f- for the first time as you said since the Reagan era come to some kind of agreement on a bipartisan immigration reform and it's possible because we've seen it before we've had two different agreements that fell apart one with President Bush he struck with Ted Kennedy, another with President Obama kind of the gang of eight uh, Marco Rubio was part of that a few others uh, that then fell apart uh, at, at some stage or another and didn't get passed but the framework, is still the same. And Congresswoman Veronica Escobar from El Paso has uh, some legislation uh, the Dignity Act that I think is uh, a really great bipartisan uh, starter for us. If if it's not gonna be this exact bill, I think a lot of the elements of it, and I've signed on to it, a lot of the elements will be what we end up doing on a comprehensive bipartisan basis. It has uh, elements of border security because every country does have to secure uh, its border. But part of border security that I think we don't talk about enough uh, is that our border patrol agents are being asked to do things that are not within really the scope of what they normally would be doing or what is really their job in terms of securing the border because it's, it's so much administrative, because we have so many slowdowns uh, and we have so many uh, inability to process uh, folks and to, uh, to process asylum claims. Uh, and the wait time for that is unacceptable. Uh, and so it, it would address that both by uh, adding additional resources and technology but also by taking some of that burden away and putting it in its proper place on the administrative side uh, and reducing those wait times. Also dealing with the folks who are here who are undocumented. I went to school in Dallas with a lot of kids whose parents uh, were undocumented. That's a, it's a, a reality in Texas. Uh, we know we need to do something about this. Employers want to do something about it, um, but then also better matching our immigration system to meet the needs of our economy. And this is what employers are telling me constantly whether it's Texas Instruments that wants the highest tech workers in the world and can't always get them, uh, or whether it's uh, the father and son roofing company that I have in my district that is paying upwards of $25 an hour for roofers because they they can't find anyone who who can put up roofs on these buildings that we're throwing up in our area uh, in 110 degree heat. We need uh, to, to make sure our immigration system better meets those needs. And This is all legislation that we have that we can do, but it's not going to happen when we have folks in office like Ted Cruz who use this as a political wedge issue instead of trying to actually solve the problem. And uh, I'll give credit uh, to Senator Corner. I think he wants to find a way forward on a bipartisan immigration reform, and it's going to have to be bipartisan. And we need to have two senators who will work towards that. How how big a role should... uh... Foreign
0: aid, uh, when it comes to the the, the countries that, that many of the migrants are are, are coming from, I mean, uh, I think this is it's it's always been a complex issue because there's always the concern that the money is maybe going to end up in the hands of corrupt politicians or people. Or it's not going to really uh, help to solve some of the, the problems that, that we have. But it, it 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 seems to me that there's um there's always going to be that challenge if you have people. Feeling that they need, in big numbers, feeling that they need to flee their home countries yeah. because they're, whether it's climate problems or economic problems or political persecution, that these problems are so extreme that, that they have to leave. And wh- it's not,
1: I know this, there's no easy answer to no. this, but what, what can we do that we're not doing? Well, I'm a member of the Foreign Affairs Committee, and I think you're putting your, your finger on the pulse here, uh, which is that uh, there are conditions that drive these surges of migrants. Venezuela, for example, is in collapse. Mm-hmm. Millions of Venezuelans have fled, and we're seeing a lot of them showing up at our border. Mm -hmm. Haiti is in collapse. We're seeing a lot of Haitians showing up at our border. In El Faso, they were doing uh, instructional videos uh, in Spanish and in Creole Mm -hmm. um, because there's so many Haitians who are coming. Uh, Whether it's El Salvador or Guatemala or Honduras, we know some of the conditions that are there that are driving folks uh, to leave. Uh, And I think we have to look at this in the long-term uh, and see what productive roles can we play in strengthening institutions in these countries to allow them, yeah, and we're not going to do it everywhere, but to allow them to stabilize uh, so that it's not driving these huge uh, you know, flows of migrants. Uh, and this is one of the reasons why, for example, in the Trump administration, when President Trump cut aid to the Northern Triangle countries because he said they weren't doing enough to stem migration, it was actually, you know, shooting yourself in the foot because it was that, that's that aid that helps us help stabilize those countries that then helps keep folks from having to feel like they have to make this dangerous journey. Because most of the migrants that I've spoken to, and I have spoken to some of them, would rather, would prefer to stay where they're from, but they felt they had to leave. Uh, and I think, uh, I also think that we need to do more on what the Biden administration has started to do, which is uh, this process of saying, don't come to the border if you want to make an asylum claim. This is not the appropriate way to make your asylum claim. There's an app, uh, you can use this. We'll have processing centers that will open in your country where you can make your claims there. And I understand that there's some folks that will still feel that they're fleeing for their lives and that might not work in every case. But uh, the uh, what we wanna do is stem folks feeling like that the only way is to engage with one of these coyotes or engage with one of these criminal enterprises that are you know, basically human traffickers That we're promising them things that they can't actually do to get them in the United States that are taking their life savings and then dumping them uh, on the Mexican side of the border and and just saying you're on your own. Uh, And that's creating destabilization in Mexico as well. uh, And we need to address this. And so we we have programs that actually do this around the world. Uh, We are not able to solve all countries' problems, as you know. Uh, but there are, I think, smart programs that we can put in place to strengthen democracies, to strengthen institutions that in the long term can help us, I think, stem some of this.
0: One of Cinder um, rowling uh platforms, one of the main ones, is um, circled around Uvalde, right? The school shooting that happened in Uvalde. Um, what do you say about that? And I know your, your mom was a teacher. She's a retired teacher. Um, what policies would you? are you interested in looking yeah. at that?
1: Yeah, my mom taught for 27 years in Texas public schools. Uh, my aunt, her sister, was a Texas public school teacher. I went to Texas public schools, um, and I'm a father of two young boys. And I think that every parent uh, felt as they watched their children walk into school the week of the shooting in Uvalde, uh, that what if this happens in my child's school? It's just unimaginable. It's just, it's, I, I, for me sitting here right now, it's unimaginable. You know, some of the stories of, you know, children with a child was identified by her shoes. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's heartbreaking doesn't even begin to describe it. And I just refuse to accept that there's nothing we can do in what I think is the greatest country on earth and maybe in the history of the world. To end this, what is now, I think, unfortunately, a uniquely American crisis mm-hmm. where gun violence invades almost every aspect of our life. Uh, there are, of course, these horrific mass shootings that we're seeing, whether it's at the, the Allen Mall uh, or in El Paso, or of course the school shootings, uh, or in their places of worship. There's also the daily toll of gun violence. You know, I went to a high school in Dallas where we had metal detectors that you walk through to to try and catch the guns that they knew were still getting into the school. They checked your bags. I had friends who you know uh, died from gun violence when I was growing up. Uh, and this, we have to be able to do something about this. And I am proud that for the first time in 30 years we passed uh, some gun violence prevention uh, at the federal level uh, that Senator Corrin helped lead in the Senate and that I was a part of in the House that had some important provisions around, around allowing states and helping them set up their own red flag laws, uh, uh, closing the boyfriend loophole, strengthening some of our background check, syst- background check systems. That is important, and I hope we can build on that and find some consensus as a community and as a state. Uh, And I particularly think around kids, to to your point, we don't let you drive full speed through a school zone. Mm -hmm. We make you slow your car down. Mm -hmm. We make you put a special kind of car seat in your vehicle to protect your children. Mm -hmm. There's obviously more we can do to protect our children from gun violence as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, to me, it begins with reducing the overall gun violence in our communities um, but also, of course, we need to make our schools as safe as possible. What I have been concerned with in the past is that some of these come as unfunded mandates for schools that are already struggling to pay for their own uh, re- requirements, so we can help with that. Uh, but we're not going to be able to do anything about it until we address the overall level of gun violence. And I do think there are common sense steps from universal background checks, the red flag loss, the raising the age, that, and safe storage that have the support of the vast majority of Texans and Americans and that we can all agree on and that don't in any way infringe on anyone's Second Amendment rights.
0: What sets you apart from Roland Gutierrez?
1: Well, as I think I've always, in races like this, kept my focus on uh, the incumbent who I think is not doing the job. Uh, In this case, I am laser-focused on Ted Cruz. But I think the determination that will have to be reached is uh, two things. Number one, who is best positioned to be able to beat Senator Cruz, and who can actually do that? Who has a record of winning in these tough, high-profile federal races? Which I do. As I said, I beat a 22-year incumbent to get into Congress. Had, I think, it was a 25 million-dollar race. Uh, you know, huge numbers of you know, attack ads and things like that spent against me. Had a tough re-election. I know what it takes to win in races like this. But also my experience. Uh, at the federal level, has shown that once I become our senator, I will get things done and I'll do it in a way that brings people together. I have the kind of uncommon distinction of having been both endorsed by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which is the biggest major business uh, organization at the federal level in both of my last two elections, and by leading labor uh, unions like the FLCIO. Uh, it's possible to bridge some of these divides. As I said, I've been named the most bipartisan member of the Texas Uh, congressional delegation. It's possible to find that common ground. And at a time when I think in many ways our social structure is being strained to its max, I think that's the kind of senator we need. And I think also that there's a hunger out there from folks to hear about the things that unite us more. And I just get it from my background as an athlete because, I mean, in, in football, you walk into a locker room we're coming from every different background. You've got to find a way to get together and work towards a common objective. You can have the, the the most country boy you've ever seen sitting right next to and being brothers with a kid who's never left the inner city. It's possible. Uh, and I think we need some of that uh, in the Senate. And so that that's my pitch. It's not about anyone else. It's about what I think I can do.
0: Um, I know that you were uh, involved in trying to uh, secure the release of uh, your f- fellow Baylor bear, Brittany Griner, from Russia after she was arrested last year. And uh, I think you were part of a congressional delegation that met with uh, Ukrainian President Zelensky I, last I've, year. I also went
1: to Ukraine. Uh, yeah, yep. I met with him in Kyiv.
0: Yeah. And this is, you have you been a, a supporter of U.S. aid to Ukraine uh, in this since the, the Russian invasion happened. Uh, as you know, there is some there's been some political pushback against this or people who were concerned either about the, the, the danger to the U.S. that this could lead to... Full full scale uh, war involving the U.S. Um, some are concerned about the fiscal cost, and then there there are people who just uh, don't think Vladimir Putin's that bad, or they don't, or they don't mm-hmm. believe yeah. President Zelensky. I'm glad you said that because there's some people who just support Putin. Yeah, or they or they don't think that President Zelensky is, uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, is uh, the, the heroic figure that that hey, he is tremendous portrayed as. So anyway, you, this is a, a, ch- a political challenge. And uh, yeah. and it's a funding challenge for Congress going forward. What's, what's the case, when it comes up, if it comes yeah. up, what is the case that you make yeah. on behalf of the U.S. supporting
1: Ukraine? Yeah. Well, I'm a believer in a, in a big America that's the leader of the free world, uh, an America that if a democracy is invaded by their autocratic neighbor, helps them defend themselves. I think that's consistent with our history. I think it's who we are. And let's be very clear, what we've done here is without putting a single American boot on the ground or without putting any Americans in any danger, we have equipped the Ukrainians to basically fight to a standstill and even, in my opinion, defeat, because they've already defeated the objectives of the Russians, uh, one of the largest uh, militaries in the world. And when I went to Kyiv, when I was in Ukraine, uh, about a month before the invasion, it wasn't so much the leadership that I was impressed by. It was their sense of uh, their own country, uh, their sense of identity. I met a young woman who told me, I, I asked her, uh, yeah, what are you going to do uh, if the Russians invade? And she said, well, I'm going to get my white wine and my Kalashnikov, which is the AK-47, <laughs> and I'm going to defend my country. And at the time, I thought, well, yeah, maybe that's just talk. Well, a few weeks later, we saw lines of Ukrainians around the block lining up to be armed to defend their country. And the predictions were that within three or four days, the Russian tanks would roll into Kyiv. And here we are you know, uh, over a year and a half later, and uh, they, they are actually pushing them out of their country. And so I, I think we owe and should continue uh, to support these brave Ukrainians in their fight against an autocratic neighbor who just wants to reconstitute the Soviet Union. It's also in our national security interest uh, to do this. Uh, I think we will set a, we're setting a standard now that we won't allow this to happen, but the alternative would be that we, that we set the standard that we would allow it to happen. And folks like Xi in China, Ahmadinejad uh, in Iran, uh, certainly uh, the leadership in North Korea would be watching that and thinking, well, if that's going to be the reaction, maybe we should take aggressive action. So there's a whole domino effect here as well. Now, I'm very worried about the status of our continuing support. Ukraine, because as you said, we have a number of my colleagues who I think are either pro-Putin or just maybe don't fully uh, believe that we should be uh, putting these resources to this use. Uh, To me, uh, this is a smart use of our uh, ability to help a democracy protect itself. And it's not just us. We're leading a global coalition uh, that is doing it. Uh, And so I'm hopeful that we can continue uh, on this path. And I I think we may be able to find, hopefully, a way around this, but it's gonna be a big political fight. And and for Americans sitting there, and I I think about this often, as I think about someone like my mom, uh, who was working two jobs uh, at times uh, and struggling to make ends meet, who's wondering, you know, what is, you know, what's my interest in what's happening in Ukraine? Uh, And to me, this is about democracy itself. It's also about our democracy, it's about uh, the kind of the global order of democracy that these things don't stop at the borders of you know a country maybe you've never heard of or that you didn't pay much attention to. We've seen that it comes to our doorstep eventually. And if we don't stand up for this democracy, then it will reach somewhere where we do where we are drawn in. Ukraine neighbors a bunch of our NATO allies who we are bound by a treaty and obligation uh, to support if they are attacked. The only time it's ever been triggered was when they supported us in Afghanistan when we were attacked on 9-11. Uh, and Vladimir Putin would not stop in Ukraine. He wants to reconstitute the Soviet Union, which includes several NATO states that he has said and we know he would like to roll into as well. And so we would be drawn to this with actual American troops. And this alternative is a much better one, one where we protect democracy and we don't put any Americans at risk and we do it after what for us is a relatively low cost. Is the greatest threat to American democracy external or internal? Well, unfortunately, uh, I think we have to say right now it's internal. Uh, we have been here before, I think, but in some ways, uh, this is the most explicit that I've seen. Uh, we, Our democracy is one that has been constantly evolving. We started off as an imperfect democracy, uh, one where huge swaths of our society was not a part of it, from women to you know, people of color to even people who didn't own property, uh, and we've expanded it and reached a point where, of uh, the Voting Rights Act and some of the other legislation that we passed and Supreme Court rulings that we've had, we all expect to be able to play a role in our democracy. But for the first time in our history, we didn't have a peaceful transfer of power. For the first time in our history, I mean, and when I go around the world in the Foreign Affairs Committee and I meet with the foreign heads of state and foreign legislative leaders, one of the first questions they ask me is about January 6th and whether or not American democracy is going to hold. Because if it happens here, they're worried it could happen anywhere. And a lot of their democracies, particularly in Africa and the global South, are much more fragile than ours. Uh, and so to me, there's there's so much at stake. It's not about Democrats winning or Republicans winning. Uh, It's about whether or not you accept that your fellow citizens' collective voice is the determination of an an election, or whether or not you think that maybe some voices shouldn't count. And that's what I actually hear when I hear folks talking about that the last election was stolen. I, I think most people don't think it was. I think they think that certain votes are inherently fraudulent, or certain votes are in question from certain communities. When we're talking about Georgia, for example, what are they saying? Well, that it happened in Atlanta. Well, what is Atlanta? It's a you know it's a major African American uh, city in terms Philadelphia, of Philadelphia, Milwaukee, Philadelphia, Milwaukee. What what where are they saying the fraud is happening or whatever you, what term you want to use? And they're say, they're basically saying these folks' votes shouldn't count to determine who should be the president. And that's just not how it works in a democracy. Yes, you might win some, you might lose some, uh, but you come back, you, you change maybe your policies, maybe you you change your your approach, and you and you try again. I'm a Texas Democrat. You think I'm not familiar with that, <laughs> right? So uh, that, that to me, um, we had, it wasn't that long ago that in 2005, President George W. Bush, a Republican, signed into law the reauthorization and the extension of the Voting Rights Act uh, after it had passed the Senate unanimously and with an overwhelming vote in the House of Representatives. It was not in dispute. And here we are, just a very short period later, where I don't think we'd have any chance of passing something like the Voting Rights Act right now with Republican mm-hmm. votes or Republican president. And that, to me, is a real shame.
0: Before we wrap things up, I wanted to ask you about uh, about climate change. We've seen record-breaking temperatures in San Antonio this summer, and many of us... I'm times. feeling it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, and I'm sorry for that. I, I, I feel like I have to apologize. Dallas is hot, too. But I mean, to me, it, it, it's becoming harder and harder, I think, for anyone to deny that we're yeah. seeing we're seeing something happening here. and. Um, the Inflation Reduction Act. I think we've provided major investment in, in clean energy, um, but you know there's a lot of work to be done. Um, what are what are steps that you'd like to see taken? I mean, if you
1: were yeah. uh, elected to the Senate, yeah. Well, again, when you have young kids, I think you kind of start thinking about what what kind of a country are they going to inherit. Uh, and when I was you know playing football, this is the time of year when we'd be doing two a days training camp, getting ready for the season, all outside. Mm-hmm. And I tracked the weather pretty closely because I was going to be subject to it. Uh, And I remember 101, 102, 103. I don't remember 110, 110, 110, 110. Mm -hmm. It's obvious to me, and I think, of course, the experts have said this, and so my opinion matters much less than theirs, uh, that the climate is changing and that it's making it much more difficult uh, to enjoy some of the things that I think we all enjoy, like being outdoors, Mm -hmm. uh, playing sports, uh, to the point where when my kids are at school, they're saying they you know do some water activities in the morning, my kids are little and four and two, and then keep them inside the rest of the day. That's not, look, that's not what I want for them. Uh, but you're right that uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, which you know despite its name, was actually the biggest uh, climate bill in modern American history. The estimates are that it's going to help us reduce our emissions by 30% by 2030, and that's dramatic. And it's already, I think we're just beginning to see its impact. Uh, In my district, there's a company called Canadian Solar that's building a a solar panel manufacturing plant uh, in Mesquite. uh, uh, And it's a $250 million investment. It's going to create uh, 1,500 jobs. uh, And they're basing it basically on the subsidies from the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, I was with the Norwegian ambassador uh, a few weeks ago in my office, and she was saying that the Europeans are actually upset because so much of their kind of green energy Manufacturing is gonna to come to the United States now because they can't keep up with the subsidies and the benefits that we're offering for that. And she mentioned that there was a Norwegian battery company that was gonna open a plant in, Nor- in Norway, but now is gonna do it in Georgia. So we're just gonna, we're at the beginning of this. But for Texas, we're an energy state uh, and we're always gonna be an energy state. And we're the number one wind, wind energy state in the country. We're number two in solar. We have nuclear power as part of our mix. Uh, And, of course, oil and gas is always going to be important. And one of the things I do get frustrated with on our side is what I think is an unrealistic conversation around uh, the use of oil and gas and whether or not we're going to be able to completely transition away from it. I don't see that happening. But what I do think we can do is meet it from a couple of different ends. We can reduce emissions by uh, some of the incentives that we have in place to capture methane, uh, to uh, be better in our extraction processes, things like that. And also uh, reduce in our own usage what we're putting out that your house will be more efficient, that your cars will be more efficient, that our buildings will be more efficient. We can come at it from those different ways. And we have to look into uh, carbon recapture technology and trying to, to draw down some of the things that we've already put out. Um, but we're always going to be an energy state. And I think that's what the, for Texans and for someone who represents Texas in Congress and wants to represent us in the Senate, I'll always also make sure that I'm protecting our economy uh, and that, to me, this is about growing... Our energy economy not taking away jobs Mm -hmm. and that's what this i guess if you want to use the word transition will be that we create more jobs in this in some of these fields but i don't see it taking away and it doesn't have to be taken away because our our energy needs are actually just going to continue to grow Congressman manol thank you so much for being part of the podcast
0: yeah thanks for having me i appreciate it and for everyone listening in hope you're doing well and we'll be back with you next week take care